Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everybody. It's Mike. Happy New Year. Two quick notes before we get started today. This is the second part of my interview with Kevin McClear on Ballad of Yarmouth Castle. We had part one come out about two weeks ago. Second is that my next episode will be coming out on or about the 11th of January, and that will be Michael Roth and I sitting down to talk about Affair on 8th Avenue. So just wanted to make sure we had the chronology right. I hope everybody had a great holiday season and is enjoying a blessed and peaceful new year. Here we go. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. Then the ship Bahama Star comes steaming through the night. She sees the castle blazing, and tis a terrible sight. Jump down, jump down, the captain cries, we'll save you if we can. Now, this one was about as far away behind the Yarmouth Castle as the Finnipulp was ahead of it. The captain saw the fire about 2.15 in the morning. By that time, the fire had been going on for some time. They stopped about 100 yards from the Yarmouth Castle, and they launched their own lifeboat for the passengers. And by this time, the passengers on the Yarmouth Castle were getting off any way they could, mm -hmm. either jumping in or hanging on to the lifeboats that could be launched because not all of the lifeboats were available. They were trapped behind fire or maybe they were on fire themselves. So the Bahama Star was the only one that was mentioned, but it was the second ship on the scene, not the only one. Interestingly enough, this is a place where Lightfoot had an opportunity to have a much more dramatic scene just depicted because by some accounts, Bahama Star actually came up alongside the vessel so people could go directly from the Yarmouth Castle to Bahama Star until the fire got too much for Bahama Star and she pulled away. And so part of the people jumping off of the Yarmouth Castle was because the Bahama Star had to pull away and was no longer jumped directly onto the vessel. But just imagine the scene. You have a ship ablaze. You have another ship pulling up alongside, literally alongside in order to assert a rescue. And this is one of those things where life would be almost too dramatic for a song. At this point, you're wondering if you describe that, would people actually believe it? Well, the other thing that I think of for this is that if I'm putting myself in the shoes of a passenger on the Yarmouth Castle and here's this ship, you know, if I take two or three steps back, I could probably leap from one ship onto the other all things being equal. And now all of a sudden I see that pulling away mm -hmm. for its own survival. I mean, I don't know what's going on. All I know is that I'm being abandoned. I'm going to die. Again. Again, there's hope. And now the hope has been completely shattered. I would think that would be the most devastating psychological aspect. Being in a ship that's on fire is scary enough. But then to have your only hope be snatched away from you. I, I can't even imagine, you know, how devastating that was. 
God, help the ones who sleep below and cannot find the way. Thank God for those we've rescued upon this awful day. Well, to make an end to the story, about 2.30 a.m., the U.S. Coast Guard started sending planes and helicopters, and they got all of the survivors by about 4 o'clock in the morning off the ship. And the Yarmouth Castle sank at about 6.03 a.m., and I don't think they ever actually recovered the remains of the ship. I think it's still at the bottom of the Atlantic. The total that died, 87 people went down with the ship. Most of their bodies were never recovered. And then three died of their injuries later at hospitals in either the Bahamas or the United States. I don't know where. Oh, the Yarmouth Castle's moaning. She's crying like a child. You can hear her if you listen above the roar so wild. Is she crying for the ones who lie between her molten sides? or crying for herself, I'm a wondering. And this goes back to, you didn't use this word before, but the spirituality behind shipwrecks, behind anything having to do with the sea, but especially shipwrecks. It's mourning the ones that were lost, but it's also mourning its own demise. It's great personification, and it's not just giving a voice, it's now giving emotion to this object. So it's taking on functional attributes, but it's also taking on emotional attributes. And I don't think I've seen examples of that related to a ship in most other literature that I've ever heard or seen. I want to say, though, that this is my second favorite line. And the reason for it is because it really goes back to the injustice of running the ship so far beyond her prime. The best thing you can hope for for a ship is that she has a good long life and she makes it home safely and is scrapped and parts of her are reused into, into, into new stuff. The most honorable thing for a ship is for the ship to make her last run and bring everyone home. And uh, here we have this personification of a ship that was denied this honor. And is she crying for herself? Is she crying for her passengers? The answer is yes. I firmly believe the answer is yes. And I love the fact that the question is asked. I absolutely agree with you. And this is one of my favorite lines of the whole thing, too, the one that we were just talking about. One more thing on the technical aspects of this before we talk about the context of the song in the album. You mentioned that the Yarmouth Castle was mostly a wooden superstructure. Mm -hmm. um, and wasn't that also something that was changed with the international laws about survival of persons at sea that you yes. couldn't do wooden superstructures anymore? Yes. And it was actually something that had changed for American vessels beforehand. That's why she was retired from the American fleet and why that, uh, why she was reflagged in Panama is we weren't doing that for our passenger vessels by that point in time. Well, the song was on the Sunday Concert album in 1969, it was his fifth original album. This was a song that was probably played a little later in the concert. It was num the number seven track. It was on side B. I think it may have been the first song on side B. It wasn't released as a single, but then there were no singles that were released from this album. The album didn't chart in Australia or the UK. It got to 21 in Canada and it got to number 143 on the Billboard 200. So this is still relatively early in Lightfoot's career. I think it was his first live album. He's made two or three of them, I think. 
what to you from the Sunday concert album, what is your favorite musical aspect of the song? This is just going to seem uncharitable to me, but I think uh, the musical aspect I love about it is its potential. And I say this because I don't think that Gordon Lightfoot knew what he had in this song. It's, it's fair, it's easy, but see, he writes so many good stuff, I could easily see it being very easy to overlook the stuff that doesn't make itself obviously known. But the song is a prototype for the record of Edmund, Edmund Fitzgerald. In, in many ways, it's a better story because there is a villain. There is uh, survivors. The, the material he had to work with is fantastic. Well, survivors but, and not just victims. Yeah, yeah. The material he had to work with is, is, is fantastic for this uh, story, but it doesn't have the repeating eighth notes on top of full bars. It doesn't have that percussion. And it doesn't have the music that will keep you going if you're not really into lyrics that the record of Edmund Fitzgerald has. It has a lovely folk ballad sound. It, it's someone who is writing a folk ballad, which works well. Uh, when when you are used to sitting by a fire and listening to someone sing for an hour, it's a very basic arrangement. It's a very simple arrangement. There's a lot musically going into it. It's very pleasant, but it doesn't have the energy. I, I don't think it would have gotten on an album if you hadn't had it in that concert. And one of the things that's, that's amazing to me about the song is that I did not learn it from him. I learned it in the living room, listening to someone else who's, who's, who's responsible for teaching me a lot about history that I didn't learn in school. And it's, it's something that he kind of threw out there and it's grown its own. It hasn't been covered by that many people, but in a sense, it's the closest thing to a true folk song he's written because most of the people who know it don't actually know the origin. I mean, a lot of the other stuff that he's written has gone into the folk canon, but we often reference the original source. In this one, he just kind of laid it out there in this album and then did nothing else with it. Which is fascinating because it's such a, such a good song. We'll be right back to our conversation with Kevin McClear about the Ballad of Yarmouth Castle. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two. Hi, this is Audie Martello, the host of the Mostly Folk Podcast, a 60-minute foray into the music we all love. You will hear newly released albums, classic folk, country, and bluegrass music, as well as some traditional music that may or may not be true to the genre. Sometimes irreverent, often opinionated, but always entertaining. You may even hear a radio magic trick every so often, as well as numerous interviews via Zoom and telephone with established as well as indie artists. Mostly Folk is available wherever you listen to podcasts and always at MostlyFolk.org. The world at war. Two lives in the balance. Who will live to see another day? The leader of the free world or a man falsely accused of treason? In this new dramatic audio series, A Date with Death, Helen Meeker has to make that choice and time is running out. Assigned to exposing an espionage ring operating on American and British soil, Helen must outwit bank robbers, avoid booby traps, and even have dinner with a dead man. When the date with death is over, who's picking up the check? Ace Collins' best-selling World War II novella, A Date with Death, 
comes to life in this production by the Long Highway Players. Available on Acast and coming soon to a podcast feed near you, A Date with Death is a proud member of the That's Not Canon Podcast Network. You know, I could have seen him putting this on an album if he, his first album, I guess, came out in 1966. And I think he probably could have found a place for it on one of his first two, uh, either, I guess, The Way I Feel or the original Lightfoot record, because they are very much in, as you say, the folk canon of the folk style. And it was a popular thing to write story songs like this in the mid-60s. That being said, when I listen to this particular version of it, it's stripped down, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's something missing in the arrangement. I don't know what it is. I can't explain it. I couldn't tell you, well, it needs X or it needs Y, but it just, to me, there was some element that wasn't there. And again, I couldn't even tell you, well, what about this instrument or that instrument? The finger picking is great. Rick Haynes has a very understated bass at that point. I thought Red's lead guitar was all right. What's missing is session musicians. I mean, if it was on the first two albums... It was a live performance, and with a live performance, you have the nature of, of the performer and the audience, and you have an energy that you don't get in session work. But it's a different type of collaboration than you have with session musicians. And if you had the same backing that he, that he did, and the same sort of, okay, we have two hours in the studio, uh, we have a whole bunch of people whose job it is to make those two hours count, make this song work, as opposed to a live performance where it's, I'm sharing with you the song that I have written. So there's a very different energy there. And, and generally, live albums are better. But this is a folk song. This is a folk ballad. And if it was going to have a chance from an economic perspective, it needed to have the dose of economic reality that session work gives. Well, that and the fact that the more pieces you add to a stage performance, that means you have that much more to worry about. Mm-hmm. No matter how well you've rehearsed, there's always the chance that somebody's attention is going to lapse for a minute. You're going to have to maybe abandon the whole track if it doesn't come out real well. Because we didn't have the same kind of recording technology to fix things that we'd have in later years. You didn't have that in 1969. Mm-hmm. But it does bring up another point about the performances which is that he's only played it twice in concert, not counting this one from the research I was able to do. He did it once in 1966. I don't know when that was in reference to his first record coming out. He did it once in 1974. Both of those times were in Toronto. One was at Massey Hall. I don't remember where the other one was. But it does bring up a question. You mentioned that it's missing the presence of studio musicians, but then it does bring up the question, why didn't he put it on a record at some point. I mean, he certainly had access to studio musicians after the first couple of albums. And by 1969, he was certainly something of a known quantity. Why didn't he put this on a a, a studio record? Well, the thing is, someone with light flexibility can write a really good song and have that song not be good enough to thrive because he has so many options of so many other things that he can pick up and do a lot with. She's not working on the same grading curve as the rest of us. His B song would be my A++. 
uh, but it's still his B. And so he's got all this A work to flesh out and work on. I do think that this was a rough draft of the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald without him obviously knowing the future song was happening. Yeah. Because if you look at the poetry of the two pieces, there's a lot of similarity. But if you look at the orchestration of the two pieces, there's nothing that would say that these were orchestrated by the same brain. And so I think he had a really good idea and a really good story and a really good sense to understand that what he had was not marketable because he hadn't yet figured out how to make us all care about a folk ballad. And by the time he gets around to writing the record of the Edmund Fitzgerald, he's got the ability, he's got the skill, he's got the knowledge of what works and what doesn't to say, okay, this time we're going to do this and we're going to make it work and we're going to make it right. And if you have all that wonderful canon of music and you've got this one piece that doesn't quite work, I think it just languished because it is only a B piece and there was no reason to go and revisit it and, and give it the polish that would make it work. Yeah. There may have also been some sort of judgment call from the people in the record company. I guess he was working for United Artists at that point where they made a judgment call saying, okay, well, this is not, as you said, marketable um, mm -hmm. in that particular, either economic time or the tastes of the people or for whatever reason. So there may have been some sort of judgment. We do know that Lightfoot was not overly happy working for United Artists at that particular time, although I don't know whether that was manifested in anything surrounding this particular record. There have only been three covers that I could find that anybody put on vinyl. One is in French by a guy named Jean-Guy Barkhan. Uh, George Hamilton IV recorded it, and then there was something called the Internet Tribute. And I'm wondering if there's anyone that you kind of wish had done this or that you wish would do this, people who are either around in the music scene now or people that maybe are no longer with us that you wish could have done this or you would have liked to have heard try it? Well, I think for this song to get the treatment that it really would make it fly, I'd like to hear the Pogues do it. I would like to hear, I'd like to hear Billy Bragg do it. These are people who have an audience who's ready for a story of sailors and of passengers who were done in by corporate greed or a corporate system that didn't allow the ship to have an honorable end. And I, I think that if you had uh, someone like Billy Bragg doing, he, he's got enough folk chops to be able to kind of run it close to, to the original, but not. Or if you have the Pogues, just do what the Pogues do with it. I think that you'd have a very powerful story to tell. The song is a very powerful framework with which to do it. If you wanted a modern version that would sound a lot more like what we have, it'd be Matthew Boyne. He does a lot of great stuff, and his audience, being maritime Canadians, would, I think, appreciate this one. We'll be right back to our conversation with Kevin McClear about the Ballad of Yarmouth Castle. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two. Are you a fan of true crime, cults, conspiracies, and all things sinister? Then tune in with me, your host Steph, every week for a new episode of the Sinister Story Hour. You can find the Sinister Story Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Hello, my name is Sandro. And my name's Zach. We are historians. Well, movie historians, we're not qualified for anything else. Join us on our podcast, Oldie But A Goodie, where for all of 2022, we're reviewing movies from the year 2001. That's right. Every episode, we look at all the movies that came out that week back in 2001. Then we pick one film and we do a full synopsis review. It's it's Oldie But A Goodie. Sometimes, m- most of the time, we find bad movies. It's usually a fun time, but also usually one of us ends up pulling our hair out by the end of the episode. And we have a lot of hair between between us. What a selling point for the trailer. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty excited. Oldie but a goodie. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast. The ones that I thought of, and I it took me a while to think of anybody that I would really like to hear do this. Three, actually. I would have loved to have heard Stan Rogers do it because I think he had the gravitas in his voice where he could have added a level of drama to it that Gordon couldn't at whatever it would. I guess he was just 30 years old at that particular time. Now, Stan Rogers wasn't that much older when he died, but I think he had a certain stage presence or production presence that would have made this interesting to hear. Today, maybe John Mellencamp, early John Mellencamp, because I don't know how tightly he is tied right now to his acoustic roots and then if i didn't think it would be cliched i think maybe i'd like to hear bruce springsteen do it because i think he certainly has a class consciousness Mm -hmm. and he would appreciate the song although i don't know if the rendition that he would do especially if he was doing it with e street band i think it might be a little bit over the top but maybe something i'll ever i'll never know I want to say one of the interesting things you you brought up Stan Rogers because in a sense he did because earlier I was talking about how this is a story that doesn't get told very often but this is absolutely the story of his mythical Mary Ellen Carter that wasn't a boat that existed but it's the same story of absentee owners who put a ship out without supporting the ship and just took the insurance money and ran and I think that Ghost of Tom Jode would be a fantastic vibe for this i think you're right there i i would love to hear springsteen do it just him and an acoustic guitar or Mm a an ensemble that was no bigger than the one we had on sunday cancer or maybe one more piece but again i don't know what instrument that would be i'd have to think about that more kevin as we're wrapping up anything else you want to say about the song or about what's been going on with you either musically or otherwise this is a song that I think is not yet been brought to its full potential. I do think that there's someone out there who's going to pick up the song at some point and just blow our minds because there's so much you could do with this song, especially if you, through liner notes or through an introduction, kind of set the stage for it. Utah Phillips told us at one point that the long memory is the most radical idea in America. And he went on to talk about, he was talking about labor music. You know, the reason why we sing these songs is they are a truer and more accurate representation of our history than the best history book we'll ever have. And this is one of those instances uh, because we don't hear about this. I mean, those of us who have books entitled 
great maritime losses or whatnot. We have, we have pictures of this vessel. We know about this vessel. But in the general population, we don't know about these, these, these native people who died because Coast Guard didn't have the ability to say, we know this ship is unsafe and we are going to stop it from leaving port. It's good that we've gotten the heightened survival of life at sea solace treaties out of disasters like this. But it's important that we have songs like this to remind us of what happened because we don't have history books that do so. Kevin McClear, thank you so much for joining me today. This is a song that, as you alluded to, is really criminally neglected in a lot of ways. And I hope first that someone does pick up this song and run with it for the purposes that you've mentioned, keeping us aware of the economic state of things and the negligence that goes on. And two, I hope to have you back on the show again to talk about another Lightfoot song. It'd be my pleasure. And thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your listening matter. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com. I'd like to make a special request for you to visit my Patreon page. I love this show so much, and I want to keep it going, and you're in a position to help. Please head over to www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. A dollar or two a month is all I ask. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Well, our next episode is going to feature my guest, Michael Roth. He and I will be digging into the Back Here on Earth album, and we'll be discussing Gordon's song, Affair on 8th Avenue. That'll be coming out around the first of the year. Until then, this is Mike Messner for Kevin McClear, reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.